You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 59 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. This is the show for August 2018, and I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. There's uh, no one joining me this month. It's just little old me having a chat to you. And um, if we're going to categorize this show, this one goes into the pile of opinion. This is definitely not one of those factual shows where I explain some sort of deep, you know, nerdy photographic technicality. This is opinion. This this is very strongly opinion. Um, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret. This isn't even the show I had planned to record. I'd spent the whole month planning a very, very different show, which was also deep and philosophical as opposed to technical or an interview. Um, but the other topic I spent my whole month preparing is evergreen, completely evergreen. It has no, you know, it, it won't go off at all. So I've put it in my back pocket and it, it will come up again maybe a few months, but it'll come up again. Uh, And instead, I got utterly derailed by listening to another podcast. So I was, uh, you can picture the scene, I was planning on recording this show yesterday. I've come home from work, I've jumped on my bike to get my daily exercise, I'm half an hour into my cycle, coming through the charming little village of Newtown on the border of of Meath and County Kildare. And uh, the guys on the Shuttertime podcast are working their way through episode 209, um, Sid is away... And therefore couldn't be on the show, so it's um, Mac with guest host Antonio Rosario, our good friend. And the guys were having a chat about uh, shooting projects or sequences of images, uh, which to me are actually two very different topics, but they had one show about the two, and it was a really fun show, so goes to show what I know. Uh, But anyway, as I was coming through Newtown, Antonio literally asked me a question straight into my headphones, which is a weird feeling. Um, Basically, Antonio said that I think, looking at Bart's photo stream on Flickr and Bart's photography in general, I think Bart shoots projects. I think that's how Bart thinks about photography. Um, And then he sort of went, actually, I don't need to think that. Why don't I just ask him? And he just literally went, Bart, do you shoot projects? I was like, well, yes, yes, I do. But rather than shouting into the air as I'm out cycling, why don't I record my thoughts in an organised fashion? Uh, so I got home and I started writing show notes, and then by the time I finished writing show notes, it was after midnight, and I thought, hmm, yeah, probably best not to record now. So I'm recording this a day later, and on a topic I hadn't really planned to. But anyway, so this entire show is me answering Antonio's question, do I shoot projects? And I guess one very, very, very useless answer would be yes. Yes, I do. Uh, But needless to say, there's a little bit more to it than that. So I want to start my thoughts on this uh, by giving you my definition of what I mean by the rather open-ended term project. So I spent a lot of time while I was out cycling um, trying to figure out actually what is a project in in my view. Like I said, this is not a dictionary definition. This is a BART definition for what it's worth. So to me, a project is a planned collection of related images shot over an extended period of time, designed to be more than the sum of its parts. In other words, the project should result in a piece of work that is more than just the sum of the photographs that make it up. you got to have that sort of, that, that magic thing where 
you know, emergent properties, right? The, the images together have to work better than the images do on their own. Um, I say it has to be a collection of related images. A project has to have a theme for it to be a project, in my view. And it has to be shot over an extended period of time. It, it, it's, you know, it, it's... Um, it's something that you put time and energy into for it to be a project. It's not just something you do of an afternoon. There's more to it than that, in my opinion. Otherwise, it's it's a photo shoot, not a project. And I also feel very strongly that it's something you can't project backwards in time. Um, you can't sort of shoot at random without planning anything, come home and then try to find the theme and then retroactively bless it as being a project. To, to me, that's not how it works. Projects... They sort of have a sequence of them, you know, research, planning, shooting, processing, editing. And when I say editing, I mean that in the editorial sense, not in the photoshopping sense. That's processing. And it's not necessarily a completely linear flow, right? So you might do research, planning, shooting. Shooting doesn't go well. Back to either research or planning. Maybe some more shooting. Try some processing. It's like, oh, dear. I wanted a really grungy monochrome feel, and this this isn't working. I, I blew out the highlights. I didn't, you know, the shadows are way too bright. Whatever, it, it, this isn't working. Back to planning, back to shooting. I mean, you know, you can end up going around and around these five steps many different times. But at the end of the day, the, the five steps do kind of have to be there for a project to work. And they do eventually have to happen in that order, research, planning, shooting, processing, editing, because... Well, you can try planning a shoot without doing your research first, but it won't go very well. You can try shooting your photos without doing your planning. That won't go very well either, most probably, unless you're just darn lucky, um, which doesn't seem to work for me. Uh, It's definitely excruciatingly difficult to process photographs you haven't shot yet, and it's also kind of impossible to pick the best out of a collection of non-existent photos. So you really do have to research, plan, shoot, process and edit. Uh, I would also say that, you know, I think Mac at one point in the discussion said that for him, a project had to be something with an end goal in mind or it wasn't a project. And I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. Um, In my view, there's lots of different types of project and some of them are very, very clearly defined, very narrow. Um, Probably the best example of something that I would say like that would be a project I did quite a few years ago now where I decided I wanted to capture how much a place I really liked changes from season to season. And so I picked one of my favourite views in Carton Estate, which is um, a beautiful old stately home just outside Maynooth where I live. And they have a beautiful boathouse next to what is actually an artificial lake, but it doesn't matter that it's artificial, it's still pretty. Um, and there's a particular composition I really like with a path in the foreground that makes an S-shaped curve and sort of leads the eye into the lake with the boathouse in the background and there's trees framing both sides of the scene. It's just it's a composition I really love. And so I decided that same composition, like, you know, as best as I could, you know, moving my camera an inch, although there was months went by between these two shoots, so it wasn't quite without moving the camera. It was basically trying to make sure I could get my spot again same lens, you know, just as similar as possible so that the composition would be as close as possible to identical. And I wanted to capture the same place in what I think are its two best um, moments of the year, which is autumn, as we would say, or fall, as Americans would say, and winter. And so at the end, the end of the day, this project always had a really clearly defined goal. It was going to be a diptych, and it was going to be the same shot twice, 
one next to the other. Uh, but it actually took a long, long time to produce that final outcome because it just wouldn't bloody well snow. I mean, even in the best of scenarios, there was always going to be a few months went by between autumn and winter. Uh, but as it turned out, the the, the the Irish weather, we don't always get snow. Some years we get a lot of snow. Like this year, for example, we got completely plastered in the stuff. And then, you know, a decade went by with very, very little snow. So... I, you know, it, it was a very clearly defined project with a very small final outcome, a single diptych, uh, but it nonetheless took quite a bit of time. But anyways, that's a very, very narrow project, um, clearly defined with a definite end goal. There is a clear beginning, middle and end to that process. Beginning, shoot the first picture, middle, shoot the second picture, end, edit it all together, create the final diptych. Very, very clearly defined. But a lot of my other projects are the like exact opposite of that, the complete inverse of that kind of a clearly defined thing and probably well there's two the spring to mind but i one of my ongoing projects that i don't ever see having an end to is my desire to capture life along the royal canal the, the royal canal cuts clean through the middle of maynooth where i live and it's you know nearly 300 years old now it's no 200 and a bit years old anyway it is many hundreds of years old and it's been. It was completely abandoned. That it sort of became a muddy ditch, uh, but it's been completely restored now from Dublin all the way to the River Shannon. So its full length is now navigable, and very slowly, it's going from being this forgotten, almost unnoticeable, filthy-looking ditch that was completely weeded over, into being a really important part of life in Maynooth. It is, you cannot be alone along that canal anymore. It, it's full of joggers and cyclists and people stand up paddling and boats and you know, it, it's, it's, it's just really come to life. It's also because it, once you leave Maynooth Village, you're straight out. I mean, the canal doesn't follow civilization. It just cuts clean through the countryside. It follows contour lines, if anything. Um, so very quickly you're into nature. And so you have a swathe of different wildflowers and insects and you know it's just there's so much going on and then just the little creme de la creme the uh when they went to build the railway line between what well, was initially dublin and galway and then later became dublin and sligo um the middle and great western railway figured that if you buy a canal you're bound to have a level path for your railway which was clever thinking uh, canals, however, take very sharp corners and trains don't like that. So actually, it wasn't very clever thinking. But nonetheless, they made the purchase and they ran the railway line next to the canal. So that brings in my other never-ending project, which is my absolute love of railways. So, you know, I'm always going to be trying to capture the Royal Canal and the railways. And the thing is, they're always changing. So I can never be done. You know, if I capture, even if I were to somehow think I, I nailed it today, well, by next year the place is different, so then I haven't nailed it anymore. And uh, not that I ever think I've nailed it. So, you know, it's, it, again, it's it's the exact opposite of the kind of, I want to take this exact diptych. It, it's much, much more open-ended, more fuzzy. Um, A lot of my projects are also triggered by a certain personality trait I have. Um. I jokingly call it my Pokemon personality because it sounds better than obsessive-compulsive. Um, but basically, I have a desire to catch them all. Um, so when I become interested in something, I, I'm i a completionist. Um, I want to catch them all. So I, what was it? I, I was out on the bike at one stage and 
an interesting butterfly caught my eye, so I went online to try to figure out what species it was. I then discovered that actually in Ireland there aren't very many species of butterfly, and in this part of Ireland there aren't very many, you know, it's quite a small set. So of course I then spent the next two to three years trying to get a photograph of every single species of butterfly that inhabits these parts. Naturally, right, completionist. Um, At some point... I found a pretty-looking wildflower, looked up what species it was, and then got sucked into the whole trying to take a picture of all the different wildflowers that grow in this part of the world. This has happened to me quite a few times with things. Um, So I have the kind of personality where if something catches my eye, I'll start reading about it, and then I will very often get sucked into a project where it's my goal to try complete the set. Gotta catch them all. So that's sort of my Pokemon personality. And yeah, a lot of my um, a lot of my photo projects get triggered by that personality trait. You might call it a flaw, you might call it a trait. Either way, you know that is one of the ways I end up sucked into projects. Now, actually, speaking of getting sucked into projects, so I think I've sort of strayed a little bit from talking about different types of project to I've sort of already transitioned to the next thing I want to talk about, which is you know what are the inspiration or the ideas behind the various projects I get stuck into. Um, so while my Pokemon personality, as I'll call it, definitely has played its part over the years. Um, Another thing that's absolutely played its part is my nerdy curiosity. I like to know how things tick. And I get really passionate about things when I start to learn how they tick. And when I get passionate about something, I want to share it. So if, you know, the perfect example, the, the canonical example is my love of trains. Initially it was trains, it's, it's gotten broader. Um, but for as long as I can remember, some of my absolute earliest memories are of Christmas holidays with my grandparents in Belgium and my grandfather. Basically, it was my grandfather's job to get us out from under my grandmother's feet in the afternoons uh, so she could, you know, keep the house in order. Um, it's usually just the two of them living there and then all of a sudden this family of five show up for two weeks. Gotta have been chaos for them in hindsight. But anyway, you know, Granny would need the afternoon to recover and or do the, the basics to keep the household going. So it was Grandad's duty to get the kids out of the house for the afternoons. And so he would take us down to the local railway line. Uh, so there's like a playground and a forest and there's a couple of things there to keep us entertained. But cutting through the middle of it is the main railway line between Brussels and Antwerp. And that is a darn busy railway line. And so counting the wagons and goods trains was one way we spent obviously hours. But anyway, I have extremely fond memories for as long as I can remember of being out train spotting with Grandad. And like I say, because it's this four-track railway-style highway between the two biggest cities in Belgium, it, it, it was a very rewarding kind of train spotting. You never had to wait more than you know two or three minutes for the next one to come thundering by. Uh, and also, because it was two-track goods, two-track passenger, you had everything from express trains to trains that stop everywhere to goods trains, and the harbour of Antwerp is one of the biggest harbours in Europe, so needless to say, the variety and range of locomotives and passenger trains and all sorts that came thundering through there was huge. Um, so it was very rewarding. Anyway, you get the idea, I'm kind of into trains. Um, and so it seemed completely normal to me when I got into photography that, of course... I would photograph the trains and I would try get a photograph of every different type of locomotive and every different type of EMU and DMU that came through that village. And so off I was in my first sort of the starting point of my railway project. Um, but actually it morphed because, you know, just capturing the trains isn't actually 
all that exciting. Um, it was fun for a while, but it actually doesn't tell the story of railways. Railways are much bigger than trains. Railways have a real effect on the landscape that they come that they cut through that they, they inevitably become a part of landscape. So much so, in fact, that if a railway line is closed down, it still remains a part of the landscape a hundred years later. I mean, you know, they literally move mountains, put these things down. Like a railway really affects a physical landscape, but a railway also really affects the people around it because a railway is run by is run by many people, but it also it's a major part of many, many, many people's day. I mean, it is a railway really gets into a place. And so I stopped being interested in cataloging trains and became interested in capturing railways or railway landscapes, sort of how I like to think of it. And so to illustrate the point, I popped into the show notes two links to photographs. So the first is an early shot of mine when I was just starting to get interested in railways. And it's sort of the quintessential documentary shot of a particular type of Belgian EMU, and their electrical multiple units. So in this case, it's an NMBS-SNCB class AM75, plastered in graffiti, by the way. Um, and these are just a very common. The 75 means they were built in 1975, by the way. And they're still running today, actually. Um, fresh coat of paint. Anyway... So it's a very artistically not particularly challenging. It's documentary. You know, it's capture a picture of a thing and share it. And that same project has now morphed into me trying to get a much sort of broader feel of railways within their landscape. And so the example of that is a fairly relatively recent shot, much more recent than the first one, of a steam train making its way through the County Kildare landscape on a bleak winter's morning. Um, so it's you have a cemetery in the foreground, you have the rolling Kildare countryside stretching out, and then in the sort of the mid-distance you have a steam train and some carriages, and above it a sort of a brooding winter sky. The steam train is at most 5% of the height of the image. I mean, it, it is just a handful of pixels. But it's still actually the important part of the photograph because it's the railway, not the train. So that's sort of, you know, that's how that project has morphed over time. You know, you can flick between those two images and they're, it's the same project, but it's clearly evolved a lot. So sort of this idea that, yeah, you might start off planning, shooting, etc. But yeah, sometimes these things change and you go through that iteration many times, especially in an open-ended project. Um, and I still get sucked into passion projects. Um, my most recent one is aviation, um, which all started with a blog post, of course. So I think one of the one of the Mac tech bloggers I read just did like a little one-off line, sort of a little, probably John Gruber, most probably, basically a little one-line link post, basically saying, "Hey, check out this cool blog post." And it was an excerpt from a book which I ended up buying and enjoying um, by a seven four seven pilot. Um, and this was a chap who, who came to flying planes later in his life. He didn't go straight out of school and immediately become a pilot and said he had a, a career in business, decided that wasn't fulfilling, and then went back to become a pilot as you know an older adult. Which means that, A, you only do that if you're very passionate about something, but B, as an adult, you're, you're more reflective on these things. So he his take on aviation was really fascinating. And he was able to, he, you know, he wrote very well. 
And it was a snippet from a book about these really weird abstract thing called waypoints, which are these imaginary points in the sky that airplanes navigate between, and they have like funny three-letter names like dad and sad and all sorts. So it's actually maybe it's four letters. Anyway, the point is they have these silly, meaningless names. Actually, it is four letters. Um, and it was just a fascinating read. And then he went on to discuss the fact that everyone, everyone in the sky, all the pilots, all the commercial pilots, are united in the fact that they speak something which, at first glance, is English. But it isn't really English. It's actually a jargon, which just happens to use a lot of English words, which is aviation English. And it's a fascinatingly different to, you know, you could speak perfect aviation English and not be able to have a proper conversation with anyone in a pub. Uh, because that's not what the language is for. The language is for flying. And so, but anyway, it's kind of interesting that everyone on the entire planet who flies is united by this pigeon English that is aviation English. It's, anyway, the blog post completely sucked me in, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and that sort of spiraled from, oh, waypoints, that's interesting. I wonder what waypoints exist around Ireland. Oh, can't just find that out online. Fine, I'll buy myself some Irish aviation maps. Ooh, cool. You know, I see all the waypoints. And then somehow I ended up, probably because I was thinking about the jargon, and then I was reading about the jargon, and I learned all sorts of cool things like call signs. So Aer Lingus, the Irish flag carrier, um, they date back to an age of aviation when call signs weren't factual. They were kind of cool. So, you know, nowadays Americans' call sign is American and, you know, they're very boring. You know, Delta's call sign is Delta. But in the early days of aviation, the call signs had a bit of, a bit of oomph them. I think one of the American carriers from down south was called Cactus as their call sign. Um, British Airways was Speedbird because their logo at the time was this beautiful Art Deco bird. Um, and... The Irish national carrier took the call sign Shamrock, because of course the Erlingus planes with their beautiful green colour have this big white shamrock on their tail fin. Always have, always will probably. And so to this day, if you tune in to air traffic control anywhere where Erlingus fly, but especially Dublin, which is their home base, you will hear the control towers talking to Shamrock 731, you're clear to do this, or Shamrock 734, make your speed, whatever. They genuinely still call the planes shamrocks. I think that's just cool. Anyway, I found a link somewhere to a website where you could listen in live to air traffic control. And I got sucked in deep. And before you know it, I was standing outside Dublin Airport with my camera taking pictures of airplanes. That's basically what it comes down to. And that's sort of, you know, my most recent passion project inspired by my nerdity. And I think so far, I'm going to pop a link in the show notes, but I think so far on this project, which is still quite young compared to my railway project, and um, my favourite shot is of an Aer Lingus jet powering its way into the sky from Dublin Airport. And again, I've learned a lot from my railway project. So I immediately, I never went through the phase of just trying to get close-up shots of airplanes. I immediately was interested in, I mean, I did take some shots to show the airplanes, but I was always interested in being more than that, in capturing aviation not just airplanes and so this shot which is my current favorite you see this this Aer Lingus jet it's it's on its way to America it's a big body jet um and the pilot has pulled back in the control column the plane has rotated and the back wheels are just coming off the ground and there's this massive clearly visible jet blast shooting out of the back of the two big engines so this is clearly a plane that's going places and it's very dynamic. And in the background is what will, to me, always be the iconic shot of home. Um, if ever I leave the country, my first view of home is Dublin Airport's Terminal 1, which has written 
above it in giant green letters, Bolya Ahaklia, Dublin. So that is that sort of that green Dublin airport sign is very evocative to me. And so this photograph of the plane literally mid takeoff with the jet blast shooting out at the bottom of it with this you know the the terminal and sign that just to me scream home. I mean, this is, you, know, so you can see why this this shot really appeals me. But anyway, so far that's my favorite on the aviation project. But it's I'm sure I'll be shooting airplanes for many years to come. But anyway, so you know one of the ways I get inspired is I'm a great big nerd. I like to know how things tick, and once I get stuck into something, I inevitably point my camera at it. Um, another type of project I've gotten really sucked into is where I decide I want to learn a technique. I just basically decide I want to learn how to do X. And so my project is to become competent at doing X or Y. Um, one of those, at one stage, I spent hours standing along the track side um, trying to get a pleasing shot with light trails. So basically, I, I would plan to be, you know, from dusk onwards when the trains would be running with obviously visible lights. And I experimented with fully dark and dusk and full moon nights. And I did a lot of experimenting. And it turns out that actually fully dark doesn't result in particularly pleasing light trails. You do actually need... It can't just be the light trail. You have to be able to see some of the stuff around it. So full moon, actually, I found out works really nicely. Um, and passenger trains, because they have windows, sort of work nicely because you're going to get a ghost of the train. Anyway, I popped a link in the show notes to sort of what I consider to be the the best result of that project, um, which is, I think I, what is that title? The, the, the shot, Racing the Moon. And it's a full moon over the Royal Canal, uh, the trees are framing it left and right and this train came charging through the shot um the exposure was i made sure to time the exposure so that this would be true but basically you can't see the starter end of the light trail it's there's some trees then there's this perfect unbroken light trail and then there's some more trees and the light trail is reflected in the completely still waters of the canal while there's a full moon blazing overhead so because of the full moon and because of long exposure the towpath, the trees, the canal, they're visible. Uh, but because it was actually dark, um, the train was running with all its lights, the windows were on on the inside of the train, so you have these really clear light trails. So it, you know, it, I found that basically that was what worked for light trails. But, you know, the project was basically becoming competent at shooting light trails. And once, once I felt, okay, I have figured this out, the project was done and I moved on. Um, similarly, um, I at one stage decided that I wanted to figure out how to do a pan blur, how to get competent at shooting pan blurs. So, naturally enough, I sort of made it my mission to get good at this, did a bit of research. I said, okay, so where can I be guaranteed to get things that move in a way that's predictable, where I know exactly where they're going? I went, trains. They literally don't have any choice over where they go. They are on the line, and they are going where the line goes, which is brilliant for trying to practice panders because there's no unexpected movement. That train is running along that track and nowhere else, unless you're witnessing a catastrophe. Um, so I then spent hours and hours standing along the railway line trying to, you know, get good at panders. And again, I, I've popped into the show notes a link to sort of the the, the shot where I basically felt, yeah, okay, I'm done now. I've I've uh, I've figured this out. Um, and then you know, I wasn't all that, you know, once I'd figured it out that I considered the project sort of closed. So in this case, it's a shot of an Irish rail, um, class 2200, if anyone cares, um, diesel multiple unit, 
racing towards Dublin with an intercity service from Sligo. Again, reflected in the canal. I do love my canal reflections. Um, and so the train is popping out between some trees and the train is in focus and everything else. Well, the train and its reflection are in focus, but everything else is nicely blurred. And there's a, there's a fine balance, actually, between the amount of blur because too much blur is pretty much impossible to get anything even vaguely in focus and too little blur and it's just a shot of a train. So the, you know, it took a bit of time, quite a lot of time and effort to, to get good at the technique. But anyway, once you figure it out, it's kind of an easy thing to do. And so... At the end of the project, what I had was a new technique in my back pocket. And then wherever else, whatever else I was doing, if the situation called for it, I now have this new tool at my disposal. So recently, you know, aviation is my big thing. So needless to say, I was able, again, link in the show notes, I was able to apply what I learned on my Pandora project all those years ago to my new love of aviation photography. And so my favourite so far in that way is a shot of a Ryanair jet coming in to land in Dublin. And the Ryanair jet is, you know, he's on final approach, wheels are down, the runway is in sight. And the plane is perfectly sharp, tech sharp. And in the background is that iconic Terminal 1 of Dublin Airport, which is absolutely positively not sharp because it has been nicely pan blurred. And you really do get the sense of dynamism of motion of this is a jet you know, hanging less than a jet's length above the above the ground, uh, about to touch down in Dublin. And, you know, the, the, the blur isn't too strong, so you still get a sense of, you know, you're at an airport. And if you know Dublin Airport, you probably even get the sense you're in Dublin. Um, but it doesn't distract from the jet, and so it tells a story. But again, because I had done the project to get good at pan blurs, I didn't, it didn't take me any effort. I was like, okay, click, 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 dial that, you know, dial in these settings, Next plane that comes in, I'm just going to pan with it. Click, click, click. Done. Literally got the shot first time. You know, basically I decided, ooh, a pan blur would be fun, and I got a pan blur. And that was because I'd put the time and effort into doing the project to learn the technique. And so, you know, if inspiration doesn't hit you in, in sort of a passion project, then there are also really practical projects where it's like, I can't do X and I wish I could. Well, there's a project. Learn how to do X. You know, again, you've your research plan execute. So the research is trying to get advice from, you know, how do I even go about this? What are the theory? What's the, you know, what are the ideas to keep in your mind? The pitfalls to try sidestep and so on and so forth. And then you say, okay, so where, where is the scenario where I can put this technique to practice? Get yourself there, do the shooting, do your post-processing, and then pick and choose from what you've come home with to what's actually worth, you know, what are the keepers, what is going to make up the output of this project? You know, so again, technique is a way to be inspired to do a project. Uh, and then I was thinking more about it, um, and another technique, uh, not technique, another inspiration that, that worked for me a few times, it's kind of an odd one, uh, it was worth me two, two particular times spring to mind, um, but basically it's fear. Um, so as a kid I used to be afraid of the dark, and then that has morphed into my love of astrophotography, uh, but another thing I was petrified of as a kid is dragonflies. And where I grew up, I didn't encounter them very often. I might only encounter one every two or three years. And as insects go, particularly in Ireland, they're bloody big, right? As a kid, they were bigger than my hand. And they have these four big leathery wings that make this horrible noise as they fly, or scary noise at the very least. Uh, And they just look like something from Jurassic Park. They're scary little feckers, 
if you excuse my French, you know, while you're a kid. And many, many decades later, I was cycling along my favourite Royal Canal. Uh, well, one of them showed up and buzzed me, and I pretty much nearly cycled my bike into the canal. And I just thought to myself, right, I am petrified of these insects. Are they actually dangerous, or am I just being completely irrational? So I went off and did some research. Turned out completely irrational would be the actual correct answer to that question. Uh, So I decided to try photograph as many species of them as I could find along the canal. And it took me a while. My first few shots were taken from a large distance with a big zoom. Um, But I did eventually pick up the courage to get closer and closer and closer. And I can now tell you that the exact species of dragonfly that almost resulted in me going for a swim with my bicycle is something called a four-spotted chaser. And I have a link to this in the show notes to my favourite picture of one of this species. And do you know something? They're absolutely beautiful. The eyes are still a bit freaky. But they are lovely. Uh, really. And so I got completely sucked into photographing dragonflies. Um, the research phase is actually very useful because it turns out that a chaser... Although it looks like they're almost... At first glance, you think they're really hard to photograph because it barely ever sits still. But I learned on the research part of my project that um, they will always have a perch. And what they do is they perch for a while and then they do a circuit where they patrol their territory and look for dindins and then they land back on exactly the same perch. They sit there for a while, they patrol their territory, they try to find something to eat and then they land on their perch and sit there for a while. So if you see a four-spotted chaser taking off, don't chase it. Don't run after it. Run to where it was and wait. It will be back. And so that's the power of research. Without having done the research, I would not have had much success in the field. But having done the research, I knew that what I should do is see where the where he's perching and wait. And let him come to me, which is much easier than me trying to chase after him. Um, now, shooting dragonflies means that you're outside in a habitat exactly where damselflies hang out. Because they, they, they have the same season and they live in the same habitat. And damselflies are just very, very delicate. Like a dragonfly is this big scary thing, but damselflies are so delicate. They're like, you know, matchstick thin but still very big and long, with these four very, very slender wings. Beautiful little things, but, you know, so petite compared to a dragonfly. Anyway, I saw a dragonfly eat a damselfly, and then I got interested in the damselflies, and so project number the next one, which involved quite a bit of research and an awful lot of peering at the patterns in the first segment of the abdomen just behind the head, because depending on whether it's a U-shaped blue thing or a diamond-shaped blue thing, it's a different species, don't you know? Anyway, I got sucked in deep, of course, because that's what I do, and so my next project was damselflies. Um, And that led me to discover that uh, damselflies, when they um, make love... They do so in the most beautiful love heart shaped orientation pattern, you know, well, position. Yeah. So instead of the missionary position, they have the love heart position. And so I've popped a link into the show notes into my favorite shot of the, you know, damselfly love, as I called it. Um, it really is a love heart shape. It's kind of cute. Anyway, so getting over my fear of dragonflies actually started two of my projects and getting over my fear of the dark really is responsible for my love of astro of astronomy in general and astrophotography in particular 
Um, and then another inspiration, which doesn't, my personality isn't particularly, I'm more of a nerd than an emotional person. Um, but on occasion, life happens. And, you know, things in life aren't always good. And so, recently, actually, one of my most interesting projects, and it's actually one that I did for me, and I did for my family, and the end was the output of the project. The project had a very definite end goal, which was a calendar for the year 2017 um, that I gave to some of my family members. And so I spent the year 2017, sorry, the year 2016 shooting the pictures for what would become the 2017 calendar. And I didn't, to this day, I've shared almost no pictures from that project on social media or in public anywhere because the reason for the project was because our family went from having had no bereavements in a long time, really, to all of a sudden losing both of my grandfathers um, within a year of each other, um, which is strange. It's quite a shock. And it just sort of put death on my mind, really. No other way to put it. And so I decided that I was going to explore that and I was going to go out intentionally take myself out of my comfort zone so my normal style is vibrant clean colour so you know not uncolour casted strong colours particularly blues and greens which Ireland is so fantastic at providing and I decided actually the other thing is detail texture I don't like I don't like drowned out shadows I like there to be texture in my shadows and texture in my highlights I, you know I like texture everywhere and I really decided to move out of my comfort zone so I was going to shoot photographs not just of cemeteries but of ruined cemeteries of cemeteries in a state of decay and I was going to shoot them in monochrome and I was going to go for a contrasty look of monochrome so I was going to squash the shadows maybe even the highlights too which is completely outside of my silence. So I spent pretty much the whole of 2016 doing that project, and the end result I have is physical. So I still have the calendar, and I, you know, I'm going to be keeping it. So it's a project I did for me and my family, but that I never really did share on, on Flickr or anything. And it had a very clear beginning, middle, and end. But there was also an awful lot of research involved, because I then had to go and find ruined cemeteries, and then plan to shoot them, actually shoot them, process them. And, you know, in terms of the, the, the five stages of a project, I, I think that project fits them perfectly because, you know, there was planning, you know, there was research, there was planning, there was execution, there was processing, and there was editing. And there was a lot of editing because there's 12 months in the year. So I got to get a giant big collection of work down into 12 collages, effectively. You know, and some of the some of the calendar pages actually had single hero images, and others had collages, multiple different points of view, and so forth of the same cemetery or whatever. But anyway, the point is, it was a lot of editing. So all of the stages of, the, of what I consider to be a project were really present there. So, you know, that that is another potential form of inspiration. You know, life. You know, excrement occurs, as they say. Um, it's not something that's happened to me very often because I not tend to be that emotional, you know, the nerdy stereotypes that sort of come to mind a lot of the time. Anyway, a reason you might consider 
shooting projects is because I have found that projects change my photography. They the fact that I shoot projects has had a profound effect on how I photograph. So if you think about it, a single hero image is designed to be printed big and to stand on its own. A single photograph that is a unit of itself designed to be enjoyed by itself, to speak for itself, is a completely different kettle of fish to the kind of photographs which make a good project because the individual photographs that make up a project are not trying to say everything in one go. They're not trying to be the hero. They're trying to be a brick in the wall. So a well-rounded project will consist of, you know, different images which individually don't tell the whole story. They're not supposed to. But when you put them together, they do. That's a very, very different kind of shooting. So you end up, you know, you end up going to a place thinking to yourself, okay, so I need some close-ups to capture these wonderful textures, say, on these old headstones and the ivy creeping over the lettering. And then I need to get some wider-angle shots to get a feel for the place because the place has a feel. But then within that place, you have these cool textures and this nice architectural detail you know so you're you're zooming in you're zooming out you're capturing textures you're you're capturing compositions structures shapes there's all these different things you're trying to capture and so each image isn't trying to catch it all you're not you're not trying to get to somehow magically get the complete feel of a place in one photo which is darn difficult but instead different aspects of it in the collection and it really does make you think so very differently because you're trying to get a combination you know different points of view different levels of zoom in close and far away i mean it's it's just the amount of different perspectives that go into a good project really does affect how you go out there and shoot because you know and that's why i say you can retroactively call something a project it's not a project if you're not shooting it with the intention of building a corpus instead of trying to find heroes. The other thing is that working on projects inevitably forces you to slow down and to plan. And there's real value in that. Um, different projects will have different levels of planning required. I think probably, and it's again another one of these very very short and well-defined projects I got sucked into. Uh, at one stage I decided to make it my business to try to capture a really powerful photograph of the International Space Station flying over Ireland. What I wanted was to capture this interplay, because I just thought it was cool that you can stand outside and you can watch the International Space Station, which is a man-made thing in space with real humans living in it. You can watch it fly over the place you live. That just blew my mind, and I wanted to capture that. And I sort of wanted to capture the contrast between... What I, I I really, Ireland to me has a sense of, I don't think it's possible to live in Ireland and not feel that you're living in a place with centuries, millennia of history. This whole island is just permeated with a sense of longevity, a sense that there have been humans here for a very long time. This land has history. It just it oozes the stuff. And so I wanted to capture that and then contrast it with something as modern 
as the International Space Station. So that was sort of my mission. And there was a lot of, you know, trial and error and so forth, but an awful lot of detailed planning because all astrophotography takes planning because the thing is you don't get to put the stars where you want the stars to be. The stars are going to be where the stars are going to be. So if you want to get a nice photograph of what we would call the plough or what Americans would call the Big Dipper, well then you actually need to use some astronomy software to figure out at what time of the day the Big Dipper will be in what part of the sky and then you're trying to arrange it so that the foreground you want is pointed towards the direction of the sky where the Big Dipper is going to be at a time when it's dark from your location and what you end up finding is that there's a window of two weeks where the particular shot you have in mind is possible. And that's just regular astrophotography and that already takes an awful lot of planning. But the International Space Station takes a matter of literally just a handful of minutes to fly over. And the thing is, you want a nice long light trail, so really, you kind of have to be there for its entire apparition, or close to it, to get a nice shot. And so you really, really, really have to plan that. Um, And in Ireland, you also then sort of involves using software to figure out when the ISS is going to be in a particular direction in the sky. And so you find your, you find the background you want. And you say, okay, so in order to get the shot I want, I need something that is between the, the, you know, that happens between the north, northeast and the, and the east. Somewhere in that quadrant will work because I can, you know, physically move my tripod left or right a few hundred metres maybe or whatever. And then you go onto the wonderful site called heavens-above. I think it's .org.com. Anyway, Heavens Above is the name of the site. And you punch in your location, or in this case, the location of the, the, the foreground you want to use. And it, you have to be accurate here. But thanks to Google Maps and stuff, that's easy these days. So you get your coordinates, you point them to Heavens Above, and then it will give you a list of all the different times the International Space Station will be visible in the next few weeks. And it will tell you in what direction in the sky they will happen. And so then you're going, okay, so I need something which happens during darkness hours in Ireland in this particular direction. And then you're just looking through all the apparitions. And you go, okay, so the potential candidates are these five. And then you look at the Irish weather forecast and you go, well, that's not going to happen, that's not going to happen, that's not going to happen. And then hopefully, which did eventually work out for me, you end up in a situation where the International Space Station is going to be in the right part of the sky at the right time of the day so that your composition that you have in mind is actually physically possible and the Irish weather is playing ball. And then you just got to make darn sure that you arrive with enough time to set up your tripod and get all of your camera settings on to get your focus on infinity sorted out so that at the moment that space station makes its apparition, you are ready to press that shutter and get your long exposure shot. You know, so that's an example of you, you know, planning is such a big deal. And so I've included a link in the show notes to the outcome of that project, which is basically the project around the single photograph, but it's um, the foreground is the ruins of a church, um, and the background is the International Space Station making this big long streak across the sky with massive, you know, fairly substantial, noticeable star trails as the sort of the background background to it all. And so you really get the feeling of this modern thing streaking across this timeless ancient landscape, which is what I was going for. So I'm really happy. It's one of my favourite photographs I've ever taken. I actually have it printed out on canvas and sitting just a few feet away from me. It's one of my absolute favourite pictures. Um, So, you know, shooting projects forces you to think differently, to plan, to slow down. Another thing, though, is that the fact that I shoot projects has literally defined the gear I've chosen to buy and the software I've chosen to buy. Why do I have the Sigma Super Zoom that I have rather than the equivalent from Tamron, which was basically the same price? Why was it that when I was looking on 
the internet at these two possible lenses. Why did I choose the Sigma over the Tamron? Simple. The Sigma had a closer, shortest focus distance. So I could use it better to do macro shots of butterflies, dragonflies, damselflies, wildflowers, etc. So in other words, the projects I was working on led me to choose one lens over another lens. Why did I buy a wide-angle lens? It's because one of my astrophotography projects was I really wanted to capture expansive skyscapes where these large constellations and asterisms like the Summer Triangle would, you know, they're big. And so you can't fit them in your field of view unless you have a really wide lens. So I ended up buying, I think it's a 10 to 24 from Sigma, so a wide-angle lens. And so the result then, the photo again, I think, in the show notes, I was able to capture the entire Summer Triangle, again, hovering over, in this case, uh, Tricunnel Tower in Carton Estate. And, you know, I bought that gear because of the projects I was working on. Why do I own a copy of PT Lens? Well, it's because if you buy a wide-angle lens and you tilt it upwards so that you can capture the sky and the ground, you get massive, obnoxious, horrible-looking keystoning. And so you then need some software to correct the lens perspective. So, hey, presto, I'm the proud owner of PT Lens. Now, I bought PT Lens before Lightroom added that feature straight into Lightroom. So nowadays I don't actually need PT Lens, but I ended up choosing software because of projects I was working on. So when I think about it, Projects are the absolute driving force behind how I take photographs. So I think I'll just sort of end by sort of reflecting and saying that, you know, projects in all of their forms, big ones, little ones, well-defined ones, very fuzzy ones, really short-term ones, massively, indefinitely, never-ending ones, whether they're inspired by passions, emotions, a desire to master technique, or just, you know, by plain old nerdiness, whatever the driving force. The simple fact is that projects have defined me as a photographer. They are what drive me to shoot. And if you've never considered thinking in terms of projects, then I'm hoping I've inspired you to at least consider it. At least consider trying sort of the project mentality as a way of inspiring you to take better photographs. And uh, I hope that's answered your question, Antonio. Um, the short answer is yes. And this was quite a bit longer of an answer. Anyway, I'm going to draw a line under it here. Um, it's, you know, I'm hoping that this was of interest to people. Was, you know, I've just sort of been rambling into my microphone to some extent. There are show notes. They'll be at let's-talk.ie. Um while you happen to be there, you will find large blue buttons under the heading Please Support the Show. Um, I want to take a moment and thank all of you who do that and have done so for all the years the show has existed. Um, it is very much appreciated and some of you do that in very direct means by becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. And that is probably the single most direct way to support the show because it it's a it's a mechanism that allows you to efficiently donate small dollar amounts to the show. And at the end of the month, all of those small dollar amounts get combined into one single payment to me so it's not completely hammered in PayPal fees. And now I use the money that comes in from Patreon to pay the various bills needed to keep the show going. And they're getting close to being in balance, actually, which is really pleasant. 
But, you know, the fact that the show has patrons on Patreon is the reason it's possible for me to do this podcast, because there are no advertisers, because I don't like the idea of not being able to say what I want. So it is a listener-supported show, and therefore without you guys it wouldn't exist. So thank you very much. There's also a plain old PayPal button for just, you know, so Patreon is amazingly good, or Patreon is amazingly good for small, regular uh, donations. What's great for a one-off bigger donation is PayPal, because PayPal is terrible for small donation, because if you donate $1, like, you know, PayPal will take, like, 50 cents. Whereas if you donate $10, PayPal will take less than a dollar. So you see the efficiency there, right? So, you know, PayPal is great for amounts above, say, $5 or 5 euros or, you know, whatever you have in yourself. Uh, Whereas Patreon is great for small dollar amounts. Um, But there's also much more practical ways to support the show. Just tell people, you know, tweet about it. Tell your mates, you know, that really helps. Write a review in iTunes or whatever podcast you use. That's really helpful. Um, And then if you happen to be a fellow nerd and you happen to be the kind of person who registers domain names and or runs Linux virtual machines, then there's two other ways you can help the show. So there are affiliate links in the support show section to Hover, who are my domain registrar of choice. And so that's my affiliate code if you click on that link. And what that means is that Every time someone uses that link to buy something, and only when they actually buy something, just clicking the link and then not buying anything achieves nothing other than wasting your time. Uh, But if you actually need to buy domain names and you use that link to get there, then I will get a small commission for having sent you Hover's Way. Uh, Even better, though, is if you need Linux virtual machines, um, DigitalOcean is the other affiliate code. And uh, the DigitalOcean, what they call, what you would call a server, DigitalOcean call a droplet, because they have this whole water metaphor. Uh, But it's the website Let's Talk to is hosted on a um, DigitalOcean droplet, and if you buy at least if you sign up using that offer code, and then at the point in time when you spent fifty dollars, and that could take you months to get there. If you have a five dollar a month server, then it's going to take you five ten months to get to fifty dollars. But anyway, at the magic point in time when you have spent fifty dollars with DigitalOcean, DigitalOcean will give both of us a present. You will get some money off, and I'll get some money for having sent you towards DigitalOcean. So that's kind of the type of affiliate code I really like, where it pays both, you know, the person who signed up and the person who sent you, who sent the person over. So I kind of like that. Anyway, so lots of ways to support the show. And my big thank you to everyone who does, has done, and will support the show going forward. So um, I'm going to stop rambling on now. I'm going to say I'll talk to you again next month. And until then, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello, everybody. This is Simon Parnell, the host of the Essential Apple Podcast, a show where we aim to take a wander around the week's news in Apple, news, reviews, technology, security, and anything else that catches our eye. Plus, from time to time, we like to have guests from the industry who we get to tell us about their products, their services, their history, their philosophies, what uh, drives them, and of course, just what makes them tick. That, plus a bunch of friends 
talking about the news in Apple. What more could you possibly want? Check us out on the My Mac Podcasting Network or over at EssentialApple.com or now available on Spotify and SoundCloud. <laughs>